Turn for a while to the passage of Scripture we read in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. And I'd like us to focus on verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul here writing to Christians in the great city of Rome all those centuries ago is uh, urging them not to be conformed to the pattern of life that they see around them in that great pagan city. Because at that particular time when Paul was writing, Christians were very much in a minority. And uh, unless they were Jews, they had come themselves from a pagan background. They had come from a, a, a way of life, a philosophy that was at odds with the way of life that he was urging them to live as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Christians today, we are to follow their example also. We are not to look at the world through the same spectacles eh, as the people in the non-Christian world around us. Secular humanists, and we hear much eh, of them, they totally disregard the existence of God. Uh, theirs is a worldview that is focused very much on the here and now. They do not believe in the supernatural. They do not believe the things that we as Christians believe. They would scoff at us for believing that Jesus could have stilled a storm to such an extent that even the waters themselves it became quiet when he had rebuked the storm. As far as secular humanists are concerned, atheists, the here and now is what is important. What we experience today and tomorrow or whatever tomorrows are left to us, that is all that we will ever know or ever experience. It's a worldview that's summed up by let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We're told uh, over and over again and we whatever nature program we might view on, on BBC especially, you know, and there are some wonderful programs that highlight for us the, 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 marvel, the marvelous diversity of the natural world that uh, surrounds us. And uh, yet we're told that all this came about not by the creative power and hand of God, but it came about through this long, slow process of evolution. That we are the products of a a mindless process that has produced life from some ancient bacteria resulting from some chemical soup as the universe was formed. So those of you who are older will probably remember an astronomer by the name of Fred Hoyle, Sir Fred Hoyle. And Fred Hoyle was not a great believer in God, not a believer in God at all as far as I know, but he simply did not believe that life came about through some kind of soup, a bacterial soup millions of years ago. And so he came up with the hypothesis that, uh, yes, very primitive early life came by one means or another from somewhere out in the uh, cosmos. And uh, that's how life began here on Earth. He simply did not believe that you could put together some kind of bacterial soup 
from which emerged eventually the life forms that would find their apex, as it were, in humanity, men and women. And so for the secular humanist, there's no supernatural, there's no life after death, there's no hope for anything other than this life. There is certainly no accountability to a heavenly judge. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's simply oblivion, nothingness. And it's all summed up by Richard Dawkins. We don't hear much about Richard Dawkins these days, but uh, we did hear a lot about him, say, 10, 20 years ago. He was to be found on television a lot. He was churning out one book after another. And he wrote in one of his books, A Natural Selection, the blind and conscious automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know, uh, how's that for arrogance, and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life. But it has no purpose in mind, he says. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. And that's how life evolution is summed up by Richard Dawkins. But Christians, writes Paul, are no longer to conform to the views of the world. Now, many uh, Christians may well have held to theories that are commonplace in the world. You may have held to the theory of evolution at some time in the past, but we are not to uh, believe in these things any longer. We are not to conform to the thought processes of the world. We may have in the past, but remember that in the past, before we came to know Christ, we lived in spiritual darkness. We trod a road that was leading to a lost eternity. And it's summed up by Solomon uh, in Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And in more than one place in the New Testament, we're told that we are now in Christ. And that's a term that Paul himself uses over and over again. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We have been turned around. We're now walking along the narrow path. There was a time when we once walked on the broad highway, but now we are walking no longer by sight, but we're walking by faith. We're no longer on the broad highway. We're no longer heading into a lost eternity with millions and millions of others. We have been turned around and it's a, it's a work of divine grace. We're no longer on the dual carriageway as it were, but we're following that narrow path that takes us in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed, body, mind and spirit. We have been renewed and we have been restored. Thus the Christian is no longer uh, to approve a worldview that excludes God, for we know it to be the product of futile and darkened minds in rebellion against our maker. Although they claim to be wise, uh, writes Paul in Romans chapter 1, they became fools and they exchanged the worship of the true God for the worship of created beings. Now we can all say that yes, there are many things that we simply do not know and cannot explain. 
And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, Now we know in part, then we shall know fully. And uh, we might say, well, there's lots of things that I don't know, but I know a man who does have the answers, and that man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be transformed, says Paul, by the renewing of our minds. We're told by one of the greatest minds that ever lived that Christianity is a cerebral faith. And uh, the late Donald McLeod, Professor Donald McLeod, uh, would certainly have gone along with that, that Christianity is a cerebral faith. It's not a blind, unthinking faith. I remember once talking to somebody in my previous work experience about my belief, and he came out with that uh, trite thing, well, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, as long as you believe it. Well, say that to uh, somebody climbing a cliff face and depending upon the rope to hold them uh, should they fall. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether the rope will hold you or not, as long as you believe it does. Christianity is not a blind, unthinking faith. Our faith stems from the rational appreciation of what God has done for us in space and in time. Our faith is focused on historic and concrete events, not speculative theories derived from the minds of scientists and philosophers, but concrete events brought about uh, by God himself as he, as he works to gather a people to himself, as he works to gather a people from the east and from the west as he builds his church. I will build my church, says Jesus, and even the gates of hell shall not prevail uh, against it. Events that we read in the Bible have meaning and that have significance. Events to which our response means either life or death. A long time ago, Anselm, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, in the uh, early 11th century, late 11th century, he defined theology as faith-seeking understanding. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is so much that we do not know. There is so much that we do not yet understand. But that faith that God has implanted in us as a seed is a seed that we spend the rest of our lives trying to comprehend, trying to understand, trying to come to grips with the wonder of what God has done for ordinary men and women and boys and girls for ourselves. The content of the Christian faith is given by revelation. Revelation in Scripture, the Old Testament and the New. And remember in the early days of the church when the apostles were preaching, they didn't have a New Testament. They were preaching purely from the Old Testament Scriptures. When Paul began his preaching, he was proving from the Old Testament scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Jews rejected, was none other than the Messiah, than the Christ. There are many churches today where you will not hear much spoken about the Old Testament. And that's an awful pity, because that is the Bible that Jesus himself had. That's the Bible that the apostles had in the early days of the church. And of course, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus came alongside Cleopas and uh, his friend, 
and they, they were downcast. All their hopes uh, for the future had dissipated when they saw Christ uh, give up his last gasp on the cross and they saw his body placed in a tomb and in that a third of finality as a stone was dropped into place. And so they were going back to their home and the stranger came alongside them and rebuked them for their lack of faith and of understanding. And he took them back through the scriptures of the Old Testament from the beginning and to the end to prove that all the things that had happened in that three-year ministry of Jesus uh, came about through the will of God. And it's interesting that they were prevented from recognizing him. And only when he went into the house, it was late evening. They came to their destination and Jesus made as if he was to go on. And they urged him to come and spend the evening with us. Abide with us, they said to Jesus. And then when he came and he sat at the table with them, it was only when he broke the bread that they uh, recognized who he truly was. And Jesus disappeared from their sight and they ran back in the dark, back to Jerusalem. No street lights, no torch to guide them. They were so excited at this wonderful revelation that here was Christ Jesus, risen just as the women had told them earlier on. And so our faith, uh, we do not uh, walk according to sight, but we walk according to faith. These men and the women, they had the wonderful privilege of seeing Christ, of touching him, of handling him, of, of eating in his presence. We don't have that, but we believe by faith. We see with the eye of faith. And so often at funerals, you know, in, in, I pray that the people who are now in the nearer presence of God, they're not seeing Christ by faith anymore, but they're seeing him even as he is in all his risen glory. And that's what awaits us as Christian believers. We see Christ with the eye of faith at the moment, but the day will come, that glorious day when we pass from time into eternity, and we will see Christ. We will see him, and uh, we will speak to him. What a wonderful uh, future awaits the Christian. Sometimes people will cast doubts on the veracity of the first 11 chapters in Genesis. Science will tell us that what's recorded there is so very, very different to the things that they tell us happened long, long ago. But when we come to faith, we can no longer dismiss these passages, even though they seem to be at odds with science, as science would explain it to us because these passages in scripture Genesis 1 to 11 is part of God's word as much as any part of God's word breathed out by the Holy Spirit and thus to be accepted by faith if we accept that Jesus calmed a raging storm on two occasions on the Sea of Galilee if we believe that he walked on the waters and that he healed people from afar off, such as the centurion's servant and the synagogue ruler's daughter, then why should we doubt the veracity, the truth of the early passages of Genesis? Jesus himself never cast doubt on any part 
of the Old Testament scriptures. He didn't see, well, it's all a matter of context or it's all a matter of how you interpret it. Jesus spoke of Abel. He described him as a prophet. He spoke of the flood that people were marrying and giving in marriage up until the very day that it began to rain. You see, Jesus had no doubt about uh, the very truth of these early passages of Scripture. And then when Paul, in Acts 17, when he went to a city called Berea and he proclaimed the gospel, uh, the Bereans didn't blindly accept what he said, but they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day, every day, to see if what Paul said was true. Are we like the ancient Bereans? Do we examine the scriptures with a sense of real uh, eagerness to find out if all these things uh, are true, as Paul says? These men, these women in Berea, they saw the scriptures uh, in a new light as God's Spirit enabled them to understand. And the surely, surely the more that we understand about God's amazing love for sinners such as you and I, the greater our faith will grow. And our faith will only grow as we read scripture, as we meditate upon it, and as we discuss it one with the other. When I was at the Free Church College, uh, I felt sometimes that some of my fellow students had a, a great advantage over me because they had grown up in Christian communities, and uh, when they came to faith, they had the privilege of, of going to house groups and sitting at the feet of older, wiser men and women, men and women who had walked the faith for many, many years, and, and they learned so much. They learned so much, and here was I, somebody who came from a very different background. I'd never had the privilege that uh, they had. Uh, but nevertheless, it, regardless of what background we might come from, uh, yet the Lord can still uh, use us for his uh, glory. And so uh, Paul is saying here to be uh, transformed uh, by the renewal of your mind. And the word which is translated here as being transformed, it's the word, uh, it's... Um, Metamorphosis, uh, metamorphosis. Those of you who uh, have uh, children in the 40s or so, you might remember watching television with them years ago, and uh, there was a lovely little program called Morph, and uh, it was about a little man made of plasticine, and uh, he could morph, he could metamorph into any shape that he wanted. My sons are 45 and 43. And uh, often we sat down on a beanbag together and uh, we would watch the adventures of uh, Morph. And uh, that's what Paul is saying to the scripture. We are to metamorph. And so what he's saying here is that when he's telling us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphed by the renewal of your mind. He's not talking about a little tweak here and there. He's not talking about a little adjustment around the edges. He's talking about a complete transformation. Be transformed. And we know that the prevailing philosophers of the age in which we live will try to mold us and squeeze us into a way of thinking that is alien to us 
as Christians. We're being pressurized into the cauldron, as it were, of contemporary thinking. But God's desire for us is very, very different. The word be transformed speaks of a complete change from one thing to another. And we're to be transformed, first of all, by the renewing of our minds. One translation puts it this way, but be ye transformed in your inmost nature. In other words, our attitudes, our way of looking at the world have to be in contrast to the way the world wants us to see uh, it. And uh, Paul uses a word here that speaks of a complete change of one thing to another. Those of you who have gardens will be familiar with caterpillars. I remember when we had our first garden many, many years ago in Aberdeenshire, we planted a lot of brassicas. And uh, I remember my wife being out there on a summer evening and she was picking the caterpillars off from the cabbage leaves. We'd gone to such a great lengths to dig up the soil and to, to plant uh, vegetables and the vegetables seemed to be thriving but here were these caterpillars trying to destroy the food that we look forward to eating in the um, autumn and the hungry caterpillar that eats our vegetables changes eventually into a chrysalis into this sort of lifeless uh, looking thing but the creature that eventually emerges is something quite extraordinary, a beautiful butterfly with colorful and diaphanous wings. If you were to put the caterpillar on in, in one hand and the butterfly in the other, you would never imagine that the two were one and the same creature, that this one here had once been the creature that we see in the other hand. And that's the kind of transformation that God desires for his people. Our bodies remain the same. We don't sprout wings and fly, not yet anyway. Perhaps one day uh, we will, but we come to regard the world from a very different viewpoint. One that is at odds and is in contrast to secular uh, society, whose godless and destructive worldview prevails in our day. And when we come to faith, our outlook and our attitude changes. One of my favorite passages in scripture is in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, the great uh, general from the Syrian army, uh, he had leprosy. He was a man who was fated by his king. He'd won uh, many honors. He'd won many battles, even fighting against the Israelites, we believe. But he had leprosy. And in one day, the little Israelite maid who was working in the kitchen with his wife, said, if only uh, my master would go to Israel, then the prophet Elisha would cure him of his leprosy. And so when Naaman went to uh, Israel, he turned up at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha didn't even bother to come out and speak to him. He just sent his servant, and he said, go and dunk yourself seven times in the river Jordan. And the man went away infuriated, because he said, are not the rivers that flow through the city of Damascus far superior to any river in Israel? And he was thinking of the rivers that are formed by the melting snow on Mount Hermon. They would have been pure and crystal clear. And his servants prevailed upon him 
uh, to do what the man had said. And so he went down to the River Jordan. He dipped himself in and out seven times. He must have felt very self-conscious doing it. How would we feel if we came to this session? We wanted to become a member of the church, and we were told to go down to the River Ness and dunk ourselves in the river seven times over. We wouldn't be too happy about it, especially at this time of year. But he came up out of the river, and we're told in Scripture that his skin was like that of a young boy. And he came back to the house of Elisha, and he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. His whole outlook, his whole uh, thought process had been transformed. And then he asks a very curious thing of Elisha. He says, I'm going back to my home in Damascus. I want you to give me enough soil that two mules can carry it back to my home so that when I bow down to worship the Lord, I shall be leaning, I shall be kneeling on the soil of Israel. One moment, the rivers of Damascus were far superior to the river Jordan in which he was transformed. And the next moment, there's something special about the soil of Israel. Well, soil is soil, uh, of course. Uh, but for him, his whole outlook had changed. The way he had viewed the world uh, when he came to the door of Elisha's house uh, had changed. Now I know, he said, that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Secular humanism is a philosophy of death. Now, any of you here today who might be uh, nurses or midwives, please correct me if I'm wrong, because this particular, uh, is, this particular statistic is from a few years ago. The Royal College of Physicians claim that children in the womb feel no pain before 24 weeks. The nerves have not yet been fully connected to the brain, and thus it's perfectly okay to abort them. And we might ask in that scenario, where is care and compassion? Where is the Hippocratic oath to which they pledge themselves to save life and not take it away? As Christians, we seek life, not death. Life in all its fullness that we find in Christ Jesus. We serve the author and fountain of life. It is Satan himself who sows the seeds of death. He was a murderer from the beginning, says Jesus in John chapter 8. And uh, we find that uh, earlier on, uh, Paul has already, in chapter 8 of this same wonderful letter, in verses 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And once we come to faith, once we trust in Jesus, once we follow him, our great desire is to please God, to honor him. God honors those who honor him, we read in 1 Samuel, uh, but he despises those who uh, disdain him. If we want to change our bodies, and I guess at my age it's probably a bit too late to 
to change, but there was a time when I used to um, pump weights and run and all these kind of things. If we want to change our bodies and make them fitter and uh, leaner and stronger, then we will embark on a course of exercise and of diet and all sorts of uh, training, eating the proper food that enables us to become healthier and more resilient to illness. And it's the same thing with our minds. We must exercise our minds. What we fill our minds with slowly and perceptively will dominate our uh, thinking. If we think, if we fill our mind, if we read and watch rubbish on television, if we read and watch rubbish in the books and newspapers we read, then our thoughts will reflect that rubbish. But if we read, watch, and listen to wholesome material, then that will surely be reflected in our conversation, in our outlook, and uh, in the way we live our life, in our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. And the reason Paul gives for the transformation is so that we can test and approve what God's will is. We can only test and approve what God's will is by reading his revelation of himself, by reading what he has revealed to us here in the passages of Scripture. And it's there in Scripture and Scripture alone that we discover who God is what he loves and what he hates, what he wants from us and what he doesn't want from us, what God's will is. And there's no shortcut, there's no uh, overnight means of of, uh, finding out what uh, God's will is. It takes effort and uh, it takes determination. And only by prayerfully reading scripture, meditating upon it, and by reading good Christian books will that ultimate transformation take a place. The butterfly does not emerge from the chrysalis after one day. Change is slow. It is imperceptible, but nevertheless change there is. And similarly, as our thoughts are molded and shaped by God's word, there comes about a perceptible change. We are patterned on Jesus and not on the world. And when we come to faith, the Holy Spirit begins our work in us to conform us to the likeness of Christ. What a wonderful thing that is, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. I'm sure uh, those of you who are older remember perhaps the late uh, Kenny MacDonald, Ross Keane, uh, often told a story of a, a man, a sculptor, who had been given a commission to, uh, to sculpt a horse And he had this great big block of stone delivered to his workshop. And as he was looking at it, and as he had his hammer and chisels, somebody said to him, how on earth are you going to transform that block of stone into a horse? And he responded, I'm going to chip away everything that doesn't look like a horse. And that's how it is when we come to faith. The Holy Spirit begins a work in us. And that work can sometimes be painful It can sometimes take us to places we don't want to go and into situations that we'd rather avoid. But it's God's way of creating in us the image and likeness of Christ Jesus, to chip away everything that does not look like Jesus. I remember many years ago when I was a teenager and uh, visiting uh, relatives uh, in Lewis, where my parents came from, 
I borrowed my cousin's bike and I'm cycling through a village on one occasion and uh, this elderly lady, a Kalyak, she was outside doing something and uh, when she saw me, she said, I know whose people you are. See, I hadn't introduced myself to her, I didn't live there, I was only there on holiday, but she took one look at me and she said, I know whose people you are because I bore their likeness. If we spend time with Christ, are people, is, is that visible to people? Can people look at us and say, I know who you belong to. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes this, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is not suggesting, he is insisting. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. He is insisting and what he is insisting we do takes discipline and it takes efforts, but the rewards are huge. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life in all its fullness and we will only know that life in all its fullness by trusting in Jesus. And at the end of the day, who wants to spend their life like a caterpillar in the cabbage patch when we can soar beautifully as a butterfly and by God's Spirit, Christ enables us to do that very thing. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to these thoughts and meditations on his word. Shall we pray? Have a blessed Lord. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for uh, the wonder of your grace that you should uh, involve yourself with ordinary men and women and boys and girls such as we are. That you want us, you desire us to become like your son. Because unless we become like your son, then we cannot enter into heaven, which is such a holy place. But we thank you for the ongoing work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who seeks to conform us to Jesus, that we might uh, find acceptance in the presence of a holy God. So, Lord, be with us, be with your word as it's been read and preached throughout the world on this Lord's Day. Be with your word that is yet to be preached across in the Americas, and may your word uh, impact upon the hearts of many this evening, drawing them, Lord, from darkness into the glorious light and liberty of the kingdom of God, knowing Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Take away anything said that's not in conformity with your word. May the glory be yours, and as always, may the blessing be ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.